Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY. Before we start this episode, we've got some exciting news to tell you. If you'll be in the New York area, mark your calendars for June 24th. Our museum will be having a golf outing to raise funds to help us overcome the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic when we had to shut down for six months. And even though we are back open, tourism in New York City is at an unprecedented low, and school children are still not taking field trips to cultural institutions like ours. Our golf outing will be at the prestigious Muttontown Club in East Norwich, Long Island, and will feature a morning brunch, afternoon cocktail reception, wine tasting, a cigar lounge, and of course, a sound auction, all to help us raise much needed funds. If you are interested in playing a round of golf on this Alfred Tull designed course, you can purchase foursomes or individual tickets. Or perhaps you would help us even more by becoming a sponsor. For information, visit our webpage at nycfiremuseum.org slash golf outing. Thank you for your continued interest and support during this challenging time. Now, let's begin our show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the Bureau of Fire Investigation is created in 1854. New York firefighters respond to the Great Fire in Baltimore in 1904. And tactical control units are launched in 1970. In the spring of 1854, a number of suspicious fires caught the attention of a newspaper reporter named Alfred E. Baker. These culminated with a suspicious fire at the William T. Jennings Clothing Store on April 25th that claimed the lives of 11 of New York's bravest. This prompted him to write a letter to the New York Board of Police Commissioners suggesting that they appoint an individual to investigate fires of suspicious origin or which have fatal consequences. He even said that they should call the individual the fire marshal. That letter was endorsed with the signatures of the presidents of many of the fire insurance companies in New York City. The board approved the idea and appointed him to be their clerk and designated him the fire marshal. He was not paid by the police department for this service, so the insurance companies raised the funds to pay him. He was very effective in his duties, and a year later, the insurance companies increased their financial support and appointed an assistant for him. The board of police commissioners approved and presented Baker with a badge in the form of a police sergeant shield with the title Fire Marshal New York engraved upon it. FDNY Chief Engineer Alfred Carson approved Baker's request to wear firefighter's gear, including a red shirt, helmet, and a fire coat. However, he still reported to the Board of Police Commissioners. During his first year of service, there were 353 fires in New York with a staggering loss of more than $1.3 million, equivalent to about $43 million today. Perhaps the first arson arrest made by Fire Marshal Baker was of James Turner on May 6, 1854. He was accused of setting a fire to the basement of 96 Amos Street, now 10th Street, in Greenwich Village. The fire marshal was frequently called upon to testify in court against such perpetrators. During his tenure as fire marshal, Mr. Baker submitted his biannual reports to the Common Council that enumerated all fires that occurred, their cause, and the financial loss that resulted, as well as the amount of insurance paid. As early as 1855, he advocated a law for the safer construction of buildings and recommended that the present fire laws be extended above 32nd Street. He also took it upon himself to promote fire prevention practices, 
such as when he had a card printed and distributed to the public in anticipation of the coming winter. He described four specific causes of preventable fires as incautious use of matches, careless manner of adjusting stovepipes, improper habit of depositing ashes into wooden containers, and the thoughtless leaving of lighted lamps and candles near inflammable materials. In 1868, the office of the Metropolitan Fire Marshal was created by law, remaining under the jurisdiction of the police commissioners. Mr. Baker was replaced by Police Captain Charles Brackett at that time. In 1873, the Bureau of the Fire Marshal was moved to the jurisdiction of the fire department, and from that point forward, appointments to the position were made by the fire commissioners. The first fire marshal in the FDNY was George H. Sheldon. Hello, everyone. I'm Ted Grant, president of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we all know, the world has drastically changed since March 2020. There remains a very difficult time for everyone. At the New York City Fire Museum, our principal sources of revenue have all but disappeared this year. While we normally host nearly 10,000 school children in our fire safety education program, school closures have caused that to cease. We are also visited by about 30,000 other visitors each year, many outside the metropolitan area, including firefighters from around the world. But tourism has all but stopped. And we host many events annually for community and other organizations that too has stopped. As a result, the museum is now under severe financial strain in our ability to keep the museum open, which is run by a nonprofit organization established in 1981. Our nonprofit institution is not funded by the FDNY or the city of New York. If you believe in our mission to preserve history, educate children on fire safety, and celebrate the heroism of first responders and the contribution of the fire department, please consider making a tax-exempt donation to our new crisis recovery fund at nycfiremuseum.org slash donate. It's hard to believe, but the Alliance of American Museums estimates as many as one-third of the nation's museum will be forced to close due to the unprecedented toll of the pandemic on cultural institutions that depend on visitors, members, and donors to survive. Please don't let the New York City Fire Museum be one of the ones to close. Again, you can support us by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash donate. Thank you for your generosity, continued support, and for partnering with us to preserve, educate, and celebrate the history and tradition of the FDNY. The city of Baltimore, Maryland was afire and needed help. The fire started in the downtown area and was burning out of control for over 24 hours. At 2 a.m. on the second day of the fire, Baltimore Mayor John McLean sent a telegram to New York Mayor George McClellan saying, quote, if you can send fire engines to us with double crews of men, you will help us. The message was relayed to acting chief of department, Charles Kruger, who assigned the following New York companies to respond. Engines 5, 7, 12, 13, 16, 27, and 31. He sent them to the Pennsylvania Railroad Terminal in Jersey City to take a train to Baltimore. Remember, this is long before bridges and tunnels between New York and New Jersey. So the first part of their journey was by ferry across the Hudson River. Later, 
Mayor McClellan decided that more equipment might be needed, so engines 26, 33, and Ladder 5 were dispatched. But they didn't make it on board the train with the first contingent. It took nine flat cars to transport the apparatus, and since this was during the horse-drawn era, it also took 34 horses to power the apparatus, and they too had to be transported by rail. Battalion Chief John P. Howe was in command of the 130 members and all the apparatus that made the journey. The members of these companies were not prepared for the long trip. Most did not bring along money or heavy winter clothing, but traveling with them at the request of Chief Kruger was Dr. Harry Archer, an avid buff who would later be appointed by Mayor LaGuardia as second deputy fire commissioner. He wound up playing an important role in the trip by not only taking care of the members medically, he also footed the bill for their sustenance. Within one half hour of reaching their destination, the New York firefighters went to work. But they soon discovered an ominous problem. Their hose couplings did not match up to the hydrants in Baltimore. Typical of the FDNY, they did some MacGyver-type connections using strips of canvas to hold the hoses against the hydrants, which wasn't very effective. And they drafted water from the Jones Falls to supply their pumpers. One year later, the National Fire Prevention Association developed a national standard for hose and hydrant threads, known by some as the Baltimore Standard. But even to this day, only 18 of the 48 most populous cities in the country adhere to it. The fire wasn't brought under control until February 9th, two days after it began. In all, more than 1,500 buildings in a 70-square-block area of downtown Baltimore were destroyed. Members of the FDNY boarded their trains on Tuesday afternoon and arrived back in New Jersey at 2 a.m. on Wednesday. Amazingly, there was no loss of life in Baltimore, but one member of the FDNY died as a result of exposure he sustained while fighting this fire. He was engineer of steamer Mark A. Kelly of Engine Company 16. He developed pneumonia and passed away two weeks after his return to New York. The firefighters of Engine Company 26 returned to New York with a unique souvenir of their trip, a dog. According to a contemporary account of this adoption, a young fox terrier followed the company around as they made their way around the city fighting the blaze. And it even followed them to the train station when they prepared to return to New York. With no apparent owner, they brought him home with them and named him Baltimore. He even marched with them in the 1904 annual Medal Day Parade. We've got a picture of him, and I'll include it in this month's newsletter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Throwback FDNY podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we need your help. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, our main sources of income have declined significantly. In-person visits, school trips, event space rentals, and shop sales have all been impacted. We are now forced to rely more heavily on the generosity of our supporters. Please donate to the New York City Fire Museum to help us fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate. Visit nycfiremuseum.org donate to learn how you can support us. And now back to the episode. For those of you that are somewhat familiar with FDNY history, you are aware of what we mean by the term, the war years. It was a period of time beginning in the mid-1960s and lasting well into the 1970s when there was an unprecedented number of fires throughout the city during a time of civil unrest and fiscal constraints. During this time, 
some areas of the city were rapidly deteriorating. Neighborhoods like the South Bronx and Brownsville and Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn saw periods of unemployment, high crime, and substance abuse. Landlords could not rent their buildings and were often tempted by the hope of an insurance payment to recoup some of what they had lost. The quickest route to that money was fire. Such an environment impacts the tax base of the city, which was getting deeper and deeper into a financial sinkhole. The impact of that on the FDNY was the shutdown of multiple companies and firehouses. Budget constraints also meant less firefighters being hired. All of this was compounded and desperation was rampant. Members that were on the job during that time tell stories of their daily experiences that sound like they jumped off the screen of an action-adventure movie. But they didn't. They were real. To respond to the demands placed on the FDNY by this workload, for which there was no way to prepare but only to respond, the RAND Institute was retained to evaluate what changes might be beneficial to the ways units were assigned to alarms. Some of the busiest companies were handling 10,000 runs annually, many of which were either working fires or false alarms. Because the majority of the daily alarms, a full 55%, occurred between the hours of 4 p.m. and midnight, six additional companies called Tactical Control Units, or TCUs, would be fielded. These would be units that were added beyond the normal complement of apparatus and would be assigned to the areas of the city where the call volume was the highest. In order to staff these companies, an announcement went out for volunteers for this duty. Those who signed up would report to work at 3.30 p.m. at the firehouse where the tactical units were quartered. Because of the intensity and stress of this assignment, the tactical units had more firefighters than their standard engine or ladder company counterpart. They would then relocate to a firehouse in the hardest hit areas of the city, where they would operate until 12.30 a.m. TCU engines had six firefighters and TCU ladder companies had seven. It was anticipated that in many situations, the companies would fight a fire alone, without any staffing or equipment from additional units. Something we take for granted today was initiated as an added layer of safety and efficiency. Handy talkies. Each ladder company was issued three, one for the officer, one for the roof firefighter, and one for the firefighters on the floor above the fire. That was three radios for seven firefighters. Engine companies were issued just two handy talkies. People often ask me how FDY unit numbers are assigned. In the case of tactical control units, a specific unit numbering system was devised. The first number of a three-digit series was five for engine companies and seven for the ladder companies. This is consistent with the long-standing code number used for those two apparatus types. The second number indicated the borough they operated in, one for the Bronx, three for Brooklyn. The last number was simply sequential. A total of six tactical control units were organized, along with one tactical control chief. As innovative and effective as the program was, it faced many challenges. Although the members that volunteered for tactical control duty worked 37 and one half hours rather than 40 hours per week, they always worked at night, which can wreak havoc with a home life. Due to multiple requests for transfers back to regular duty, three of the tactical control units were disbanded by November 1971. More units were closed in early 1972, with the last TCU going out of service on November 24th of that year. And there was one other technological innovation that was introduced in 1970 as a result of the war years, the power saw. Prior to then, the axe was the quintessential tool carried by ladder companies to cut through roofs and floors to gain access to or ventilate fires. But the physical demands to successfully chop through a thick surface, particularly for an already overworked and overstressed firefighter, 
was made easier by the power saw. It also added to efficiency by accomplishing the task quicker. Now, of course, the power saw is standard equipment and probably taken for granted. The tactical control force is yet another example of how the FDNY can adapt to unusual circumstances and situations. And remember, this creative response to a volume of fires never seen before or since occurred half a century ago. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. When 41 women were sworn in to begin their careers in the FDNY's firefighting force, it was an historic moment. To say the least, their challenges were great and may have seemed insurmountable, but they persevered. To reflect this new era, the title of fireman was changed to firefighter by Department Order 142. So what year did women join the FDNY as firefighters? The answer can be found in our previous episode and in this month's installment of our companion Throwback FDNY newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help of the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you leave a building during a fire, close the doors behind you as you exit. This will help contain the fire. If doors are left open, the flames and smoke can travel more quickly. We could all do our part to be a partner to the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.